listeners, and welcome to another episode of the InQtel podcast. My name is Vishal Sandasera, and on today's show, we'll be talking about the importance of synthetic data in machine learning. Joining me today is Peter Brones. Peter is a senior member of the technical staff here at InQtel, where he evaluates advanced analytics capabilities for the intelligence community. He's worked on a wide variety of data science projects across the intelligence community and the private sector. Most recently, he's focused on social media analysis and data mining for marketing applications. Peter, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, Peter, let's talk about synthetic data first and foremost as a definition. What, what is it, what does it mean, and why is it important? Great. Well, synthetic data is coming in a kind of an interesting place where we are in, in terms of analytics. Uh, over the past couple of years, the major trends have been that there's more and more data. That's driven by a few fundamental technology trends. So sensor costs have been going down and bandwidth has been going up. This means we're observing a lot more and we're bringing all those observations back home. Uh, eventually, this created larger trends, the mobile explosion, Internet of Things, and we had way more data on our hands that we knew how to deal with. Then you get the big data revolution, and we're creating all sorts of tools to handle that. Horizontal scale-up technology like the whole Hadoop ecosystem, and also different analytic techniques that can take advantage of all that data, specifically things like deep learning. Those proved to be really useful, particularly for unsupervised or uh, unstructured data situations like image recognition. Uh, and people started making a lot of money with it. Uh, but then, all of a sudden, it turned out that the revolution hadn't gotten everywhere. Cheap sensors and high bandwidth don't penetrate into every uh, application you might want. So, but you still want to use these advanced techniques that turn out to be really powerful. So synthetic data is really a way that you can start to apply these data-hungry techniques like deep learning to situations where you're actually data poor. You don't actually have these major uh, uh, big data problems. Uh, a lot of that also comes back to the fact that deep learning uh, requires supervised. It's a supervised learning technique. It requires training data with labels. that requires someone to go through and say what's actually in each picture before you can train a computer program to actually recognize that itself. So synthetic data is a way to kind of get around that particular kind of problem. I see. So Peter, it sounds like even though we've been hearing tons and tons over the last many, many years about how data is everywhere, and to use a term that I think has just been used a lot, the big data revolution is upon us. But it sounds like what you're suggesting is uh, that not all big data, rev uh, not all of the big data revolution has actually made it uh, into various parts of you know uh, people's lives or businesses or whatnot, and that necessitates synthetic data to sort of take the place of real data. Can you tell us a little bit about a few of these uh, areas? Uh, wh where, where is big data so restrictive or, or, or perhaps unavailable? Right. So big data is most prevalent, if I can answer the converse of that first, in places where the sensor cost decrease and the bandwidth increase are helping you. So that's really in places like mobile and places like web. So if you operate a public website, if you're working on a mobile phone, you have a ton of data to work with. Mm -hmm. So what's where is that not reaching? Uh, so the first reason you might not have a lot of big data available to you is things like compliance restrictions. Uh, this is a particular problem for our customers and government, but it's also a problem in places like healthcare. There's a lot of reasons why someone might not want you to commingle data for privacy reasons, for security reasons. So there could be policies that prevent you from bringing all the data together into one place. Another uh, restriction you might run into are financial restrictions, uh, because again, these are supervised learning techniques that require a lot of training data, a lot of label training data. You have to have someone provide those labels. Mm -hmm. That can just be expensive or even you know, totally infeasible, which brings us to physical restrictions. Sometimes there's just not enough time in the day uh, to 
pull everything together. That's a real problem in places like autonomous vehicle research, where they measure the amount of data they have available in terms of vehicle miles, so how many miles has their fleet traveled in aggregate. And what they're finding is they need basically more time on road than is feasible to do at all. So you have to have some way of generating plausible ideas of what would have happened if your car had driven another million miles when in fact it didn't because you can't support a fleet that big. Right. I, I, I think I read an interesting tidbit uh, in the news the other day about how um, there just aren't enough hours and enough cars on the road even currently to generate the amounts of data that would be needed to uh, fully train a vehicle to be safe on the road by itself. Absolutely, which gives you uh, perhaps an intuition about how complex these deep learning architectures actually are. These are very complex models with huge number of parameters that have to be learned. Every observation only you know, helps you incrementally towards that. So they're really quite data hungry. And okay. So Peter, just uh, on a really broad sense, tell me a little bit about um, the, 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 the sort of the way in which synthetic data is, is even generated. Mm -hmm. So synthetic data is really about using generative models. These are models that represent the world and can come up with plausible uh, examples of things that sh would make sense to see in the world. Uh, the way you put these together is a kind of a basic workflow. You start with your prior knowledge. Uh, so you can relate that to the Bayesian statistics concept of a prior, but really it's you know subject matter expertise. It's everything you know about a particular problem. You take that information and you create a synthesizer or a generative model out of it, and then you essentially run that model in reverse to generate plausible examples. Uh, now this is a little bit different from the standard way that you use a machine learning technique, which is usually a discriminative model, where you have a model that you've trained, like, hey, like this is a picture of a cat, that's a picture of a dog, here's a new picture, tell me if it's a cat or a dog. Here, what you're doing is you're saying, hey, well, actually, I know that cats generally look like this, uh, can you go ahead and tell me, like, make me a new picture of a cat? Right. So it's, it's a slightly different approach to machine learning than you'd usually have. Uh, and again, this prior knowledge is different from the huge labeled training sets that we're typically thinking about when we're training a discriminative model. Uh, and kind of the interesting thing about that is that prior knowledge can have a lot of different uh, data types. It can be highly varied. Okay. But real basic naive question. You're, uh, you're feeding a picture of a cat. You, you know what cats look like. You tell the synthesizer model, here, make me another picture of a cat. How do you know if the, synthesi if the synthesizer model generated uh, a, a reasonable looking cat? Yeah, so that's actually like the kind of the key issue with synthetic data in general. It's only as useful as it is realistic. There's always going to be a gap between what you, the fake data that you've generated that's supposed to represent the real world and something from the real world. Uh, this is, this is a, an instance of a common problem in machine learning, which is kind of the bias versus variance problem, uh, where you can train your machine learning model on a small, very specific data set and then put it in the real world, and the real world has weird problems you didn't anticipate and weren't in your training data set, so it doesn't work. You can run into that problem with synthetic data if your synthetic data is insufficiently realistic, right? Like if you had a synthetic data, uh, data set about cars, for example, and every single car you had was actually a blue sedan. That's all you knew how to generate. Mm -hmm. Then you get into the real world and you've got cars and trucks and they're all different colors and they're covered with dirt. Like your synthetic data is not going to be that right. useful. So if you're using synthetic data in, for a machine audience to train a discriminative model, you still want to have some sort of actual real world test data. And then you have you can make decisions about how much of that real world data do I use for training versus testing? How much synthetic data do I blend in? 
Uh, that's a trade-off that machine learning experts are usually comfortable thinking about. This is not too different from things like uh, you know, cross-validation and other sorts of pro uh, techniques that we use to make sure that we're not overfitting our models. But it's certainly an issue with synthetic data. Got it. So when it comes, let's, let's say we've generated a handful of synthetic data. Um, who's generally consuming these things? Are they machines? Are they people? So you can use this for both machine and human audiences. And I think it's kind of interesting uh, to see those two things come together. Uh, as we've been looking at the market here at InQtel, there's actually been a number of different threads that have kind of come together to think about synthetic data. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, we were looking at issues such as uh, uh, social bots, fake news, artificial videos, all those sorts of techniques that are kind of out there in the human-facing side of things. And on the other side, we were looking at machine learning capabilities, and we saw that synthetic data was being used to increase the robustness, to anticipate different noise profiles that you might not have in your... Uh, in your training data set. So you really see this concept of generative models, both for machine audiences, mm -hmm. where you're trying to train a model when you might not have the training data set, but also for human audiences, where there's act the goal is to generate something that's interesting to present to a human for either you know, some aesthetic purpose or whatever. Got it. Uh, also, sort of as an aside, we, we talked about some of the, the different areas in which synthetic data has, has made an impact. And you had mentioned uh, you know, industries that are sort of plagued with compliance restrictions like medical records or financial restrictions. Um, in training or, or creating uh, training data, I guess, or, or having data for uh, confidential systems uh, is something I think Incutel is always sort of on the lookout for when it comes to uh, not having enough data to actually better understand how uh, a user would interact with or use data from within a confidential system. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, perhaps how uh, synthetic data has helped trust and confidentiality? Trust and confidentiality. So there's an interesting idea that comes up when you're talking about synthetic data, and the idea is, say I'm a, a medical organization and I have a lot of patient health records, and I wanna be able to provide that information to researchers so that they can help find better cures. Mm -hmm. That makes sense, but there's a lot of restrictions around sharing health data for a lot of really good reasons, so how can I use it without using it? Right. Uh, you can look at synthetic data and say, all right, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to study my existing patient population, and I'm going to come up with high-level statistical characteristics about them. I will use that information to generate a synthetic or a synthesizer model from which I can generate artificial patient records as much as I want, and I'll give that to the researchers. Uh, I think that's an interesting idea, but personally, I'm pretty skeptical about it. Uh, for a couple of reasons. The first is I don't know how useful it is. If you're already generating a statistical representation of your patients that's pretty good, like mm -hmm. maybe that's the model you need to have already. Like how much, you're, you're really just introducing maybe more noise at that point by creating a synthetic population. Uh, and also I'm not confident that it's really gonna give you the privacy benefits that you're hoping to get there uh, because there is so much tied into that particular model. Uh, there's a lot that we don't know right now about how much you can reverse engineer a model to understand what came ahead of it. Uh, it's an interesting question about things like, you know, if I have a sense, in general, if you have a sensitive data set, you train a very sophisticated model over it, that sophisticated model has to understand that data set, and it stands to reason that there's something sensitive in that sophisticated model. So come at inference time, perhaps there's some indicator of uh, a nefarious act in which you could uncover some of the uh, the trained data, perhaps. Right, and not, not so much like just at inference time in production, like that'll probably work, but I would be concerned about if an adversary was trying right. to attack that model, they could probably extract parameters that you might not want them to get. 
for example, you might train a speech recognition model and it could have in its vocabulary sensitive terms that you didn't want to have leak out, but it turns out it's guessing them in inappropriate times that's showing up in your transcripts. Uh, for these kinds of applications where you want to enable machine learning and research applications on a sensitive data set without sharing the original data, I really think it's better to look at approaches like differential privacy, which provide a quantitative measure of privacy leakage out of your data set. Right. Great. Thank you. For Sorry for taking us aside. That, that was actually really interesting. Peter, in your research, you've uncovered, um, in your research into synthetic data, you've uncovered a lot of different types of, of synthetic data that, that could potentially be generated. Could you go over with, uh, with us uh, and our listeners just the different types you've uncovered and perhaps which fields and disciplines they're most relevant for? Yeah, absolutely. So probably the simplest thing to think about is tabular data. So just standard structured data like you'd find in any uh, RDBMS or database, spreadsheet, that type of thing. Uh, this is probably where synthetic data got started back in the day. Uh, people were initially looking at synthetic data to try to evaluate uh, statistical models, right? If you could create a data set with known properties, uh, you know, we have a certain number of records, each one has a certain number of attributes, it's a table, great. Now we can see if our algorithm, if our research models can reproduce the structure that we know is there. So that was kind of the first place this started. Uh, kind of a couple of different interesting applications for this. One is just straight demo data, right? If you want to be able to show, hey, I've got this great CRM tool and it's already populated in my demo environment with a bunch of people and accounts and orders, but you don't want to show real people accounts and orders. Well, if you have a synthetic data or a synthetic uh, generated model, you can create a bunch of fake people and purchase orders and your demo will look better. Makes sense. Uh, this is actually used a lot in finance where back testing is really important and you want to anticipate, well, if the market did this, how would all of these different uh, financial products change in price? How would these different metrics change and what would my trading strategy do in that situation? So that's kind of a standard tabular or structured data approach. Uh, but really, a lot of the places we're seeing this applied now are unstructured data. And there's a whole hierarchy there. So maybe the simplest, although still not simple, is audio, right? Where the synthetic data is used to make automatic speech recognition tools more robust to different kinds of noise profiles. So for example, you might have a training data set of people speaking like us here in a studio, but you want your ASR tool to work when people are in a car. So you need to play a bunch of car noise in the background or perhaps some other trans transformation to the audio so that your model can learn what that sounds like. Uh, a lot of other applications for that as well as things like audio, right? So if you can create a uh, artificial version of a person's voice, you can synthesize uh, arbitrary things in a given person's voice. That'd be very useful for things like video games where you have a huge amount of voice acting that's required. Uh, for things like film where you might need to go out and like edit if you change the script after you've finished right. filming. A lot of applications for that. Uh, visual, of course, which also has a lot of entertainment computer vision approaches. A, a lot of those around video editing. Uh, we've seen a number of those things in popular culture, things like deep fakes, face-to-face, -face, uh, which there's plenty to talk about there. Right. Uh, but then there's also kind of more exotic things such as spatial data. This is a big deal for autonomous vehicles, right? Can I create a three-dimensional version of a city that's actually populated with cars and bikes and people that are moving around? Can I use that to anticipate how my self-driving car will react in a weird situation? And then uh, finally, things like uh, cyber data or network defense information. Uh, pretending to be someone you're not on the internet has been a big deal for a long time, and particularly in cyber defense areas, right? If I want to trick an attacker into thinking they've accessed a vital system, but really it's just a playground I created for them to like just watch them be frustrated in, like, that's a whole uh, side of the world in cyber defense. So it's, this concept really applies to a, a wide variety of data types and uh, verticals. That's what it sounds like. So in your opinion, uh, and perhaps even based on fact from what you've seen, uh, is there a gap that's forming between 
the availability of real data and simply generating synthetic data for these particular uh, verticals or use cases? Are, is, there a, is there a preference perhaps, and uh, wh where is that all headed? Yeah, so I think it's very application specific and uh, domain specific. The How accurate you need your synthetic data to be really depends on where it's going to be used. Uh, it's, it's most interesting, I think, to think about uh, human perception. Uh, there's a, a concept that's been around for a long time called the uncanny valley. Uh, it's used mostly in the context of things like robotics, right? If we make a synthetic human being, right, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a robot, it's got a head, it's got eyes, it can smile at you, it can talk. Like, these things are usually very, very creepy. Uh, because there's this idea that uh, computer systems or robots get easier to interact with, easier to interact with until they get close enough to looking or sounding human, at which point they are, seem really creepy and it falls off until then they, they look real and then maybe that's actually worse, but at least you're not as uncomfortable with it. Uh, so with human perception, it's it's really an interesting, interesting problem. Uh, one of the issues there is really just how much uh, money and time do you have to bring to bear? Right. Uh, Hollywood has been pushing visual effects forward for decades and decades, but that's always with huge budgets. What's interesting is what can we now do with smaller budgets as uh, you know things just come out onto the web and you can start applying these in a lot of different places where you don't expect necessarily for someone to do something synthetic that might fool you. Uh, one critical thing from a tech perspective here is how these things are created. Uh, there's this concept of a generative adversarial network uh, where essentially you have two networks that are playing off of each other. One that's trying to figure out, is this thing real or not? And another one that's trying to create something that is not real, but appears to be real. And these systems play off of each other in an optimization process. We recently had an event here at InQtel back in June where we had a panel of uh, CEOs in this field. And the general consensus they had was because of this core uh, kind of adversarial process, we're, we're going to reach a place where certainly the machines can't tell what's real and what's not. Or, and at that point, can the, the people either? Maybe, maybe not, but in many cases, no. So mm -hmm. I think there's, we're certainly at the point or approaching the point where at least in specific domains and specific applications, when people are not primed with the context, people can be fooled by this stuff. Uh, but at the same time, there's a big domain-specific question about is the synthetic data I'm making for my use good enough? Right. That leads me to my next point, which is simply who, who makes the synthetic data? Are, are, they, are, they, are they companies themselves that are working on creating models that are creating their own synthetic data? Are they outsourcing it? Is it a combination? Uh, again, depends on the particular, uh, well, it depends on how complex the data is and how mm -hmm. task specific it is. Uh, this is kind of a standard issue thing with business, right? Like if it's something that's really unique to me, I need to insource it. If it's generic and I don't think it's part of my key value, I want to outsource it. So we're seeing that same thing uh, happen. It's a difficult to see really clear patterns, uh, but it, it breaks down maybe a little bit by the type of data you're looking at. Mm -hmm. So structured data is usually insourced because it's something that's created by people who are focused on algorithm development. Uh, we see that a lot in academia and even in uh, some companies that are doing computer vision work. Um, with audio, it, there seems to be kind of a, a blend of open source approaches and insourcing. So we see some open source products to help you uh, generate better noise profiles or to, to noise up your training data. This is a process called data augmentation. Mm -hmm. So there's some good data augmentation tools for audio, but the companies that are applying that are typically working in-house. For human-facing stuff, there are a few companies that are doing generative audio on that side. 
for images, it really kind of goes both ways. There's a lot of stuff for human-facing audiences that uses common tools. So there's a, a product called Houdini FX, which has a lot of really cool procedural generation tools that help you make things like really cool-looking water and clouds and uh, large cityscapes. Uh, I consider that to be synthetic data, right? You're telling this algorithm, this is what a city looks like. Please make me one make city me with city. Th these particular dimensions. Right. right. And that's, again, you know, expensive. Takes a, per a person who's an expert user to spend a lot of time on it, but you can do some pretty amazing things. Uh, on the machine-facing applications, it's kind of uh, uh, it's kind of a mix. Again, some people are doing insourcing because they're trying to provide a vertical application. But we have seen a few companies that help create uh, visual training data sets to customize models for different applications. And in those cases, it's usually they're selling to people who have who need some vision application, right? Maybe it's a robotics company, maybe it's a uh, company that does surveying and they need a better machine vision model. So in that case, they're still this company is using synthetic data and making models, but they're then selling those models out to other people. Peter, that's really interesting. Could you tell me a little bit more about uh, where 3D data, where 3D synthetic data is being used mostly? So probably the most interesting applications there. So there, there's some stuff from VR and AR, right? Anything around content production for entertainment purposes. But probably the place where it's most impactful is in autonomous vehicle research, really self-driving cars. Uh, Waymo, which is the self-driving car unit of Google, really under Alphabet, that, that whole thing. Uh, they're very proud of their synthetic data uh, plans. There's a great write-up about this in The Atlantic, uh, I think back in September of last year, uh, where they described how they have this integrated testing process that involves both uh, on-road testing, controlled environment testing, where they actually you know, build their own roads and their own neighborhoods to have cars drive around in, and then really extensive use of synthetic data, where they look at what the car saw, see whether the car made a mistake, and then they bring it into an artificial environment and say, all right, well, you didn't get through that intersection properly because you miscalculated where the bike was going to be. Let's use a synthetic environment to say, what if that bike was moving faster or slower? And then when we update the car's uh, self-driving software, we'll see how it reacts to those situations. Right. Uh, so that's been a big deal. Uh, there was actually an article in the information not too long ago that was criticizing Uber for a lack of this kind of project of self-driving. Uh, it was criticizing Uber for lack of synthetic data expertise and suggesting that that contributed to the fatal accident they had earlier this year. So the self-driving car community seems to be coming down pretty strongly that this is a really important part of the tool chain of the development process. Mm -hmm. So I think that's probably the place where this is going to be most impactful in the you know, short to medium term. In your opinion, do you think that the synthetic data that's being generated, the, this 3D synthetic data that's being generated to run simulations on, on autonomous vehicles, um, in your opinion, again, does, uh, does the quality of that data match up to what we'd expect as, as end-level users of these products? In other words, is the data that's being generated, in fact, as robust as it should be to cover just about any sort of real-life scenario that might unfold in, in, uh, in a car? So it helps that they, how, they, how they scope the problem. So one of the things that Waymo talked about doing was that they assume away the sensor suite. They assume that they've done object recognition properly, and now they just have objects moving in space, and they have to reason about what actions to take. With that, they seem to be able to do pretty well. What that avoids is things like the perceptual problem. So if I can see that there's a person standing on the side of the road and they're not moving, that's one thing. But can I tell that that person is trying to make eye contact with a driver because they want to enter the roadway, but they're waiting to see if, like, if they could actually like, communicate with the car that, hey, right. I'm going to jump in front. Please don't run me over. Uh, I don't think synthetic systems are very good for that right, right now. Uh, we have talked with uh, a company or two that's really leaning into that problem, uh, but they haven't used synthetic data as much because, again, it's very difficult to do things that are 
at that human level. The uncanny valley is much uh, maybe wider and deeper when you're dealing with humans and how we perceive each other because right. we're so tuned into it as opposed to kind of the more generic, all right, well, this is where the bicycle and the car and the mailbox are. Like, will my robot get through here without hitting anything? Right. And if it's any consolation to autonomous vehicles, I think that understanding human intent or mastering human perception of each other is something that humans struggle with on a daily <laughs> basis as well. Peter, let's, let's move uh, and talk uh, to a little bit about uh, applications and research, uh, areas of uh, research and perhaps various um, commercial applications that are benefiting the most. We talked about autonomous vehicles. Are there others uh, that uh, stand to benefit from mm -hmm. the, uh, the rise of, of synthetic data? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, maybe, maybe on the academic side first here. So historically, it, and I think ongoing, is the, 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 the workflow I talked about earlier, where you create a data set with known properties, so you can evaluate how well your algorithm does at rediscovering those properties that are known. I th that's been going on for a long time. I think that's going to be continuing. Uh, there's some interesting applications there in terms of missing data imputation, which is a whole issue, right? If you have a, a data set and you're missing some observations for some records, how on earth do you account for those when you actually go down to the matrix level and start trying to run regressions or whatever? Like, that's a whole other area that's also using synthetic data. Mm -hmm. uh, Related to that, there needs to be a lot of research related to really your last question, how good is synthetic data, particularly for self-driving car applications? There are some ideas that you could use a synthetic environment as a test bed to certify, synth uh, uh, to certify autonomous vehicles before they go on the road. So like the state of California could have a synthetic data environment where you put self-driving car software and see if it runs anybody over. Like That's a very interesting idea. It's certainly never going to take the the place of actual real world testing, but if it was good enough, it could be a good step, but certainly more research needed. Right. Uh, on the commercial side, it's I think really any place where you're using deep learning, but you don't have the data that you traditionally need to support that kind of thing. Uh, so systems where you can't realistically observe everything you need for production use. Uh, and then of course the whole human audience side for entertainment, right? So all of the things you may have heard about recently, deep fakes, deep dreams, things for style transfer, there's creative applications for that. Improved vocal synthesis gives you tools for improved voice acting. Uh, eventually that could even lead to interesting productivity and social networking applications. Uh, things where you use synthetic data to uh, create a virtual avatar of a person uh, and that can maybe give you better uh, teleconferencing capabilities or social networking capabilities. So there's there's a lot of different ways you can go with this. Uh, I've heard of deepfake, um, primarily just because I think it was in the news for uh, a rather controversial uh, topic that it was related to. What is Deep Dream? So Deep Dream is a more uh, kind of artistic project that uh, came out of Google a little while ago. Uh, it was using, it was taking a image recognition well, it was taking a neural network that was designed for image recognition and then essentially running, turning it into a generative model. So you would feed in noise and then see what it perceived there and kind of go from this noisy background to something else. And what you got were these uh, hallucinogenic images where you'd see you know, like a piece of a dog that blends into a house, that blends into a tree, and you were starting to see some of the internal structure of the uh, system. Uh, I think they're very cool outputs. I use these as my uh, desktop backgrounds a lot of the time. Nice. Uh, but it's also related to things like style transfer, right? Where you can train a network on you know, many paintings by a particular artist and then apply that network to a photograph. And suddenly you have a a, an image that looks like that particular artist painted the scene in that photograph. So there's a lot of interesting artistic applications That's pretty cool. for these ideas. It picks ideas. up the style, the style of a particular artist and paints something new. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. Peter. Uh, we're running out of time here, but before we leave, um, I was curious to ask, uh, on behalf of our listeners, where can we learn more about uh, synthetic data, where it's making a huge impact, um, and all that? 
Absolutely. So the main place to look for this is AI research organizations. So OpenAI, DeepMind, Google Brain, a lot of the key researchers in these areas are working there. A lot of that stuff gets published. Uh, not super accessible, perhaps. These are usually academic papers, but they tend to put out good blog posts and videos to understand what's happening there. Uh, I think it's worth looking at research in general around reinforcement learning and generative adversarial networks. Uh, those are some good buzzwords to get into. Uh, on the human-facing side of thing, there's some open source uh, capabilities, so face-to-face, deepfake, uh, like we mentioned. There's some startups that are working around that to kind of productize those tools. And of course, there's the whole Hollywood and game studios uh, effort. So the game engines themselves, so Unity and Unreal Engine, uh, they have some interesting efforts around in enabling synthetic data for deep learning applications. Uh, companies like SideFX that makes Houdini, which was a big procedural tool I mentioned earlier, if you're interested in playing with that. And then of course, NVIDIA has been doing some research around this as well. Excellent. Peter, thank you for your time. Uh, we appreciate everything you've told us today about the importance of synthetic data. Uh, in our studio here today, thank you to John, our sound engineer, and thank you to Kristen, our producer. Till next time. <laughs>